Welcome back to From the Bridge. I'm your captain and host, Rick Jones, the creative director of Fishbait Solutions. This show is all about sponsorship, cause marketing, career development, business tips, life's lessons, and a whole lot of good food. The good news is we're putting the virus in the rearview mirror. Yes, COVID still remains, and there's still a threat of getting sick, but it's now like driving on an interstate highway. There are risks involved every time you get into a car. Each year, an average of 38,000 people get killed in automobile accidents here in the United States. But that doesn't mean we shut down the highways. I know how to reduce or even eliminate all highway deaths. Make the speed limit 15 miles an hour. Of course, that's not practical. And neither is hiding in your basement because some people might still get COVID-19 and you don't want to be one of them. Most of the country has opened back up, including my home state of South Carolina. But some states have not. It seems to look a lot like red states versus blue states. I was recently in Washington, D.C., and they still seem to be locked down. Most of the businesses were still closed. We stayed at a Westin Hotel, and there was no one to work there. An enormous hotel that could not serve coffee, no food. They had valet parking only. The problem was they didn't have anybody to park. And so the manager of the hotel checked us in, parked our car, and helped us with our luggage. Things have got to change. We understand California is still very similar in that capacity, too. But hopefully, hopefully soon we'll all be back together. Well, I did say there was some good news, but the better news is our world, the world of events, is rapidly returning to normal. For example, we saw a recent PGA Championship right here in Charleston that had 10,000 people excited about Phil Mickelson's amazing and historic win. We're seeing that the NFL and all of college football is saying they will be back with full capacity crowds. We are seeing festivals reopen. We're seeing the Grand Ole Opry have everyone in their seats. Yes, things are getting better. Last year, I told you about our agency's theme or tagline for 2021. It's when we get back together, let's give back together. We're excited about our charity work. We're excited to be taking our ESPN events tour back on the road. And with that, being able to highlight some of the charities that we support. We support charities like Coach to Cure MD, the Mike Sly Foundation for Prostate Cancer, and the V Foundation for Cancer Research. We are very, very excited about the things we're doing for charities under that umbrella theme of when we get back together, let's give back together. My very special guest angler today is the legendary TJ Nelligan, one of the great sports marketers of all time and someone who knows firsthand a whole lot about giving back. TJ is one of the great salesmen of our time in the sponsorship business. He graduated from Richmond University and then went to work on Wall Street. Later, he joined my good friend Jim Host at Host Communications, rising to lead national sales. Then he scratched that entrepreneur's itch and started his own agency, Nelligan Sports Marketing. 
serving a variety of colleges and universities, and later, after building the successful and very profitable agency, he sold it to Learfield as they consolidated their college sports business. TJ is the proud father of two girls and one son, Sean, who was a special needs child. We lost Sean on Father's Day 2019, and TJ has now written a fantastic book called Live Like Sean, Important Life Lessons from My Special Needs Son. Let's welcome TJ to the bridge. TJ, thanks for being with us. It's great having you. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, Rick. Well, I have known you since 1997, and I have great admiration for how you've built your business, but even greater admiration for, you know, how you've given back so much and and how you were such a great father to Sean. We're going to talk about your book and a lot about Sean, but I'd like to go back from the beginning. I, I, I know you grew up, I guess you grew up in Jersey, right? I grew up in New Jersey in Morris County in Montfield, New Jersey, went to high school there and then uh, graduated high school to the shock of everyone and went to the University of Richmond in Virginia. So you're a spider. The Mighty Spiders. First 15 seed to win an NCAA tournament game over Syracuse. That's right. That was one of the great upsets of all time. And was that Dick Tarrant, I think, was the... That was Dick Tarrant. Yeah. Yep, Dick Tarrant. His son was... uh, Lived next door to me in the dorms. Great family. Dick Tarrant was a tremendous guy. And as he joked, they gave him a one-year contract. And I think five years in a row, they gave him a one-year contract. He took him to the NIT for the first time ever. And then he went to the NCAA tournament and beat the 15-seated Syracuse Orangemen with legendary Jim Beheim, and did it many times. He beat, you know, they always say that until Virginia lost that a number one seed, actually, that's not what they say. They say a 16 seed has never beat a one. And that's really not true because Richmond in 1984, 1985 played the play-in game when the team, when the field was 48 teams, they beat Ryder in a play-in game to play Auburn, who was the number one seed, number one in the country with Charles Barkley and Chuck Person. And Richmond was winning by 20 at halftime and barely hung on to win And Charles Barkley, who's so funny, always talks about that, the pain of losing uh, as a number one seed. So it happened a long time ago, but nobody ever talks about my spiders. Yeah, I think a lot of people haven't uh, understood uh, college basketball history very well. I know they, you know, they still talk about and and, and legitimately so about Indiana's national championship run in in 76. Uh, But there had been plenty of undefeated national champions prior to that year. And people never think in terms of those those great teams. Now, when you got out, you went to work on Wall Street. Was that was that something you'd always dreamed about, or did you think that was the quickest way to get wealth? No, I think back in the old days, you know, I was in the '80s and the Michael Douglas movie "Greed Is Good" and "He Who Dies with the Most Toys Wins," and might have been a tad bit of a narcissistic egomaniac before Sean taught me about life. And I went to Wall Street because a friend of mine was making six figures uh, in our 20s. And I was making 16.8 working for Procter & Gamble as salesman of the year. I said, there's something wrong here. So I really went to work there and worked in New York for seven years on Wall Street, made money, but hated my job. 
and learned that lesson over the last, you know, three plus decades was everybody that's at the top of their game, whether it's the cake boss, Buddy Velastro, who was a good friend of Sean's and mine and lived next door to us. You know, he was making cupcakes in Hoboken, New Jersey, and now he's world famous. And who thought that the Food Network would come along and make all these chefs stars? And it's the same thing, whether they're coaches or any profession out there, you have to love what you do. And I always said, as I spoke to college students around the country, when I was working for host at first and then Nelligan Sports, was it's a lifestyle. Once I got into college sports and I left Wall Street and miraculously ran into Jim Host and started the New York office for host. And for the next 25 years, almost 10 with host communications and 15 with my own company until we sold, I never worked another day in my life because it wasn't a job. It was a lifestyle. You know, I worked as you did 10 you know, hours a day, seven days a week, went to thousands of sporting events, 25 Final Fours in a row. And I never felt like I worked another day in my life. And it was just, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Well, we talk a lot on this show. We have a lot of young people that listen because we've done a a really good job of reaching out to universities, to um, uh, sports management uh, professors and others to say, hey, this is a a cool resource for your students. It's free, and we get we bring a lot of really smart, talented people on here. And we, but we constantly preach: find your gifts and find your passions. And if you intersect your gift with your passion, you're right. You're never going to work a day of your life. You're going to be, you know, thrilled to get up every morning and do that kind of stuff. How did you meet <laughs> Jim Host? Well, it's kind of a funny story. I really uh, didn't meet Jim at first. I, I was sitting at home, hated my job on Wall Street, and I'm watching Regis Philbin on TV. And he has this guy on named Roy Engelbrecht, who ran Sportscasters Camps of America uh, in California. And he used to run the LA Forum. So I said, I'm going to that. So I go to Sportscasters Camps of America. You sleep in the dorms at Loyola Marymount. You, you do the NBA free agent league at Loyola Marymount, which was small time then. And here's a bunch of kids, mostly 90% of the people that went there went to, you know, were college students who wanted to be an announcer. Now I'm working on Wall Street and, you know, my wife at the time is pregnant with Sean and we go to this class and it tells you how to buy rights fees. So I call up the athletic director at St. Peter's College. I said, I'll give you $1,000 for your rights fees for the basketball games. Last year, you only had 10 games on a little tiny station. I'm going to put them on a bigger station and do every single game. Because obviously, college basketball is on on weekends and at night. So I could still have my full-time job at the time. So I did that for two years. Um, I was the play-by-play guy. And my buddy Joe was the color analyst. And during that time, I ran into a guy named Ray Levy at SportsMinded who was representing Jim Host in New York because he didn't have a New York office. You know, they were based, as you know, out of Lexington, Kentucky, and mainly their strength at the time um, was the Southeast. So at 29 years old, I get a job for the first year working for Ray Levy, selling all the host stuff. And within nine, 12 months, I meet Mark Kidd, I meet Jim Host, and they hired me to open the New York office for host communications which looking back on it changed my life forever. And it changed the direction of my life. And, you know, as I met Jim host, we had so much in common. He worked for Procter and Gamble, his first job out of college, as I did, he was a play by play guy for Kentucky. And we just hit it off, you know, and I always called him coach host and he always called me captain. 
And I worked there for nine years, as you know, and had the time of my life selling all the NCA corporate partners, um, all the different schools we had from the Notre Dames and Texas's and Alabama's and the Southeastern Conference and met so many hundreds and hundreds of, you know, coaches and athletic directors and conference commissioners. But the thing I really look back on, which I don't think you really appreciate when you're, you know, 30 and 31 and 32 years old was the timing of life is just impeccable. I got in, as you know, the business wasn't a multi-billion dollar industry. Host was by far the biggest in the industry at the time and would continue to be during my run there until they sold to IMG. Um, and Jim was so generous with his time. When I look back now, we would walk, he'd go, come on, let's go for a walk. And we'd leave the Lincoln building where our office was across the street from Grand Central. And we'd walk around Midtown Manhattan and he was coaching me and he was teaching me about sales and really about life. And he was so generous with his time. And that changed my life. You know, as I look back, I'm like, thank God I ran into Jim Host because it changed the direction of my life. It changed my career. And, you know, looking back to 1990, which is what, 30 years ago, 31 years ago, it's really amazing how you know, blessed I was and how grateful I am that, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to work for the icon. I always called him being from New Jersey, the godfather of college sports, because it was really like learning how to make light bulbs from Thomas Edison. You know, he was the pioneer. He was an entrepreneur and he was really a born salesman. You know, he he was in politics when he was young. And when you look at him, right, you think if you were doing a movie and you needed a senator to play a part, you'd call Jim Host. No question. He's been on our show twice. You know, he's one of my favorite people in the world. And, you know, he and Pat have been so instrumental to to our lives and our businesses. I told somebody the other day, I said, you can talk about Mark McCormick all you want. I'll take the Jim Host family tree and go to war with anybody. Um, well, I mean, you look at people that are continuing to do great things. They came out of host. Well, and you and I both spoke at his 80th birthday party a couple of years ago at the host communications reunion. And what's amazing and what I said that night is everybody talks about Coach K and his coaching tree and how many assistants have become head coaches or Rick Pitino. And, you know, there's dozens and dozens. There's thousands of people off the, you know, host Jim host coaching tree. And he has so many people out there that are working for ESPN or athletic directors. And how many entrepreneurs came off that tree between you and Mark Kidd and Mark Dyer and me and Rick Ford? There's there's probably dozens and dozens of people that have built tremendous companies because of what Jim Hall's taught us. You know, you know, and the other thing, TJ, is just good people. I mean, all the people you yep. just named are people that, you know. We've had in our homes. We, I mean, these are people that you you just loved working with and being with. Um, you know, Jim. You know, you, you know, he taught you early on. If you lie, I'll fire you. I mean, just just there's a certain way of doing business with people. There's a certain way of conducting yourself, and you know, his passion and his energy, I think, rubbed off on all of us. But. Then you pivoted. Did did you always want to be an entrepreneur or did it just come at a certain time in your life that you said, hey, I've learned a lot here. I want to go out and do this on my own. I think I always, you know, I always say that to an entrepreneur is born. You're either born an entrepreneur or you're not. Every college and university in the country now has a school of entrepreneurship, right? Now you can teach them 
you know, some of the disciplines to be a better entrepreneur. You can teach them maybe about marketing or about sales or about different disciplines. But, you know, when I was 12 years old, I had so many different jobs from the paper routes and all this, but I'll never forget that I went up and stole, you know, 20 of my father's white t-shirts, dyed half of them red, half of them blue. And then I went on the side lawn of our house in Montville, New Jersey, where I grew up. And I charged every kid in the neighborhood five bucks to be in my baseball league. And I told him I was the commissioner. So we're out there playing and, you know, there was 15 kids, 75 bucks when I was 12 was a lot of cash. And all of a sudden, the one kid runs home. He doesn't have his five bucks. My mother comes out of the garage and goes, Timothy Joseph Nelligan, get over here. I'm like, oh, boy, I think I'm in trouble. She goes, you charge everybody in the neighborhood five dollars. I go, I'm the commissioner, mom. This is my league. And she said, well, it's my stadium and your lease has been canceled. And I said, oh, I wonder where I got it from, mom. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I, I, one of the things I admired about when you started in elegant sports marketing was you took what a lot of people felt like were um, colleges that were too small or didn't have enough value. And, and you built great value in those that I think changed the industry. I mean, you know, it was easy to sell Kentucky and Texas, but, you know, now you've got St. John's and Seton Hall and, you know, you've, you've got other schools. T- talk about that a little bit. Well, I think when I first started the company, you know, I started in June 4th of 1999 and hired six or eight employees. And we started out out of the gate with, you know, St. John's, Seton Hall, DePaul, Um, And a year later, we got the Big East Conference for the basketball tournament at Madison Square Garden. But I recognized that I didn't have the bank to go out and guarantee the same rights fees that some of the other companies were doing at the time. So we went out and, you know, got all these properties and our deals weren't a rights fee. You know, even when we had Louisville, we said, "Okay, you were making X. You'll never make less than that. Um, And we had Louisville and Colorado State and the Big East Conference and. Uh, Rutgers as the big power five conferences, but you know, 90% of our schools were what people considered, you know, you can't, you can't generate a lot of revenue there. And I think we did two things. Number one, we created a model that was a partnership. So we're all on the same team. They're not trying to, you know, renew the deal. And I always said, don't hold my success against me. Cause even if you look at the host days, you take Kentucky from X to three times X in five years, and what did you do? Now they want you to pay more money for what you built, and they're holding your success against you. Yeah, you painted, created you painted that, that apartment, we, yeah, and then they want to charge yeah, you mean, more I for the apartment. Like, what? Yeah. what is going on here? We just we just increased the revenue 300%, and we're being penalized for it, right? So I even said that to ADs and presidents. I said, I just don't want you to hold my success against me. Oh, well, don't worry about it. If you're successful, we'll, we'll renew the deal. Well, what if you're not here, Mr. AD? And your next guy says, oh, I want you to pay twice as much. So we put thresholds in our contract. If we get to a certain amount of revenue, you know, let's say we had a five or seven year deal initially. If we get to X, we get another five years. And if we get to Y, we get another five years. So, you know, we had Louisville tied in for 17 years when we sold the company. And that was the value. And, you know, I'll never forget that, you know, a lot of these schools, you know, we'd roll these deals over, but they were making you know, five, 10 times what they were making before we got there. And the other thing we did, you know, which we started at host communications, but never really got off the ground is these schools like Colorado state have hundreds of vendors that they're paying hundreds of millions of dollars, whether it's the office supplies, 
or telecommunications or banking. And we go into a small division one school, you know, who is playing in the NCAA tournament, but you know, they're doing a hundred, 200,000 in revenue. We would do a half a million dollar bank deal. So these small state schools, you know, are, are, have vendors that you have a lot of leverage if you know how to use it. So we'd end up meeting with the presidents of universities whose job in the last 20 years is what? Maximize revenue. It's really not running a university. It's we need more revenue. And every single one we met with would tell the procurement guy, you need to work with these guys and get this done. So we were doing, you know, at Texas San Antonio, I, I worked in the business for 20 years. We get Texas San Antonio. I never heard of the school. They just went to division one. They were doing a hundred thousand. We got there. We're doing millions when we left and it's all off the leverage of saying, you want to have the $4 million in office supplies. Great. And you just write the RFP to say sponsorship is included. You know, in a Colorado state, we got staples, you know, to do almost a six figure sponsorship, have internships, scholarships, and all these other things that benefited the university, benefited the students, and maximized revenue. And the procurement guy would say, oh, well, they're just going to charge us more for office supplies. The fact is, they ended up paying 15% less for their office supplies, and we generated seven figures in benefits for the university. Yeah, you you so created leverage. Yeah, you really created leverage. You know, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, you sold the company to Learfield, but the legacy lives on with Polisi and, you know, yeah. who's my dear friend at Van Wagner, they've taken your model and that's what they do. I mean, they, that's your model. And it was funny. I remember Chuck Jarvie years ago talked about total campus marketing, but host never really did it until, right. until you went to Nelligan sports marketing and started doing it in a way that people were like, well, how's he doing that? Well, he's just leveraging the assets that are there in its, in its entirety. In its composite. Right. We had, yeah. you know, the first year, the first year I started the company, we lost seven figures plus because we ran into March 2000, the market crashes. What do corporations do? The first expense they cut yeah. is advertising and marketing because it's a direct hit to the bottom line. So I lost over a million dollars the first year. And, you know, then year two through 15 just went like a straight up arrow because of those things we did. And, you know, it was also because we had Tim Hoferth, who was the youngest AD at Villanova at the time when he came on as a partner in the company, and Mike Polisi from the National Football Foundation, and Mark Devine, who built the entire West Coast, 15, 20 properties for us, doing all this campus-wide marketing. And then we just said, look, here's what we can do for you. And you know, it was the people, because every year I would give more stock options to the people that created value in the company. And nobody ever quit our company. The only people that ever left, you know, left because they couldn't make enough money. So our model was, you know, you bring in a lot of money, you're going to make a lot of money. And, you know, we had a lot of people make a lot of money when we sold the company, which I didn't even want to do. You know, it was kind of my brand, right? It was my life. I was defined by it. But when IMG bought Host and then they bought ISP, you know, and then Learfield was bought by Providence Equity Group. IMG went out and just tried to capture market share, as you know, and started paying exorbitant rights fees. And at the time, you know, Learfield called us a month after they were bought by uh, Providence Equity. Greg Brown called me and we met and, you know, I said, you know what, we're not going to renew our deals on the same terms because they destroyed the model in college sports. And obviously they end up getting out of the, the business, IMG. Well, it's interesting. I think even for Learfield today, COVID saved them 
<laughs> I hate yeah. to say that, but no it, question. it saved them <laughs> because there was no way that they were going to continue with that uh, uh, model of paying higher and higher and higher rights fees for the same assets. And, and this gave them the get-out-of-jail-free card that allowed them to go back to a pure rev share model that y'all had kind of pioneered from that standpoint. I want to pivot now, though, and and and, and talk about Sean. Um you know, he was your firstborn. He was a special needs child. Let's talk about him a little bit. Well, ironically, Sean was born in April of 1990. I started working for Host in April of or May of 1990, a month later. So I worked in the industry his entire life, basically. Um, but, you know, for parents that have a special needs child, you know, he was born and we took home what we thought was a perfectly healthy baby boy. Things started to unravel over the first two years. And then, you know, I was in denial. I didn't want to know anything about it. I said, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then we went to the, you know, most famous foreknown foreknown, uh, neurologist in the world when he was about two years old. And that was a big turning point because that day, as I sat in this man's office, he has all these diplomas from, you know, the biggest universities in the world. And he's got all these books that he wrote all the neurology students studied his books in college to become a neurologist. So I sat there and said, you know what, whatever this guy tells me has got to be true. And I knew I wasn't going to get good news. And that day he basically said, you know, Sean has intellectual disabilities. He's never going to live a normal life. He'll never be able to graduate college. He won't fit into mainstream society. He'll probably never have a job. And as he gets older, these disabilities will be more pronounced and will be harder on him and the parents. And that day was devastating because, you know, you feel like, you know, your hopes and dreams for your first child were just shattered. You know, like, how are we going to live this type of life? I had no idea. And the first five, probably the first 10 years are very difficult for parents because all you're doing is going to doctors and putting them on anti-seizure medicines and physical therapy and speech therapy and occupational therapy. And it's just torture. And at some point when he became uh, in his young teens and he started Special Olympics and I got involved with the organization through Don Slatt, who was a fraternity brother of mine at Richmond, who was on the board. Um, he took on this personality that was amazing. He was funny. He walked around like he was the mayor, shaking hands with everybody. Um, and I looked at him and I said, I'm supposed to protect this young man from life and teach him about life. And as the story ends, and the reason I wrote the book was he taught us way more than we could have ever taught him about how to live a good life and that we should be emulating him, never mind us teaching him. And so over the next, you know, 15 years of his life, he taught me so many lessons, which is why you write a book. If there was one, there'd be no book. Um, but he was just the sweetest, kindest human. My daughters, Moore and Megan, always said he was an angel on earth. Um, and, you know, my daughter gave a speech at her high school graduation. The entire thing was telling the students they should live like Sean. Um, and I guess when, you know, he, he I mean, he loved college sports and he couldn't read. He couldn't write. But I bought him an iPad and he memorized all the college sports logos. And we went to thousands of college sporting events. And he probably went to 10 Final Fours and Super Bowls and everything. And he didn't know the difference. In the book, I talk about a bunch of stories. He didn't know the difference between meeting Eli Manning or the doorman of my building. You know, and 
one story I put in the book was the first day he came to work after he graduated from high school, which the neurologist said he never would. At the end of the day, he and his buddy Bobby used to do accounts receivable for Nelligan Sports Marketing. And at the end of his first day, after his mother dropped him off, we're walking to leave the building. And he stops at the security guard at the front desk. And he goes, Bruno, good to see you. I'll see you next Monday when I come back to work. And he goes, all right, Sean, good meeting you, buddy. And I go, oh, uh, hi, Bruno. I'm TJ Nelligan. Yeah, I know who you are. You're on the seventh floor. And I felt about two inches big because I'd walked by this man for 10 years. And I'd say, hey, good morning. I think I'm being nice. I didn't know his name. Sean worked there for one day. He knew the man's name and he had a friendship with him already. And the irony is every year after that, Bruno came to our Christmas parties because of Sean. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. My, my dad and I, when, when, when I was little, we, we had a hobby that we, we, we metal detected. We would go out and find, you know, Civil War battle, you know, bullets and coins and all this kind of stuff. And we bought a, a metal detector from Garrett Electronics. And it turned out that Charlie Garrett, the founder of the company, had a special needs child. And he wrote something I never forget. He said, I think God gives us these children to show how perfect human beings can be. And that's a hundred percent true. And, you know, he just taught me so much. Like he remembered everybody's name everywhere he went. But as an entrepreneur and a type A personality, the hardest lesson to learn is to be present, right? If we're at a reception at the final four and I'm talking to you and I see the CEO of some company we want to make a deal with, I'm like, all right, Rick, I'm done talking to you. I got to go make a deal with this guy instead of being present in the moment with the person you're with. And he taught me that, you know, don't fiddle with your cell phone. Don't be texting people when you're having lunch with somebody. Enjoy that moment. You know, he didn't live day to day. He lived in the moment, which is so hard for us to do. We're thinking about the past or the future and to be grateful. You know, I learned when I worked for host, the irony is as I look back, when Sean started working at Nelligan Sports, I realized I didn't have any pictures. I had a, you know five or six pictures from 10 years working for Jim Host. Why? Because I'm running at 100 miles an hour trying to get to the next goal and the next goal and the next goal. And then when Nelligan Sports started, I realized I have thousands of pictures because I started to enjoy the day and the moment. And, you know, there's nothing that's that important in life to not take the time to be grateful. And I realized that, you know, it's the journey. You know, life isn't about getting to the destination. We always say, oh, you know, I'll be happy and grateful when I hit the goal. Well, what happens when we hit the goal? We change the goal. We move the goalposts. We get to the goal in three years that we set for five. And instead of saying, wow, we should be grateful and have a party and celebrate and be happy. No, let's do twice as much as that. Right. And that was really the mantra for my whole life until Sean came along and made me realize, you know what? Life is pretty good. Well, I, I, yeah, I, we I, I love the book, and there were so many great stories, but my favorite chapter was about happy. I mean, about yeah. he, he was happy, and he, you tell that great story about y'all washing the car. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. <laughs> he, you know, and I thought that was such a wonderful example of just the purity of, of his joy. Um you know, that he would spray you and you'd kind of get mad. And then you were like, wait a minute, this is a great moment between a father and a son. Uh, and, and he would do that all the time. He would just throw snowballs at his sister, you know, no matter where we were. And Bobby, his best friend from Special Olympics, they worked at the Moffill Inn. 
and they're cutting the fries. They're taking the potatoes and putting them through the fry cutter, and they're supposed to put them in a bucket of water. Well, Bobby sees that Sean's bucket doesn't have any water on it, so he yells at him. And he didn't tell me this story until his memorial. He didn't want to tell me. And he says, I yelled at Sean that, Sean, you're supposed to put the water in. I told you to do that. So Sean went. He fills the bucket up with water. He walks over and dumps it on Bobby's head. (laughs) (laughs) His version of the Gatorade bath. I I just absolutely, I love that. Let me ask you this, TJ. Did you think about writing a book before Sean passed, or was that kind of the catalyst for you? No, I, 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 well, I thought about, Tim Hofer and I talked about writing a book when we sold the company, but about business and this and that. And, and I never thought I would ever write a book. And when I wrote his eulogy, that's when I actually came up with the term live like Sean, as I started to write all these little stories and anecdotes and funny things I wanted to tell people. And I came up with the term live like Sean, not when it's easy, not when it's convenient, but every day and your life will be so much better. And when I finished his eulogy in front of almost a thousand people, you know, there were 15 of his teammates there in their basketball uniforms. Um, and I got done. And at the end, my friend, Steve Adubato, who's on television in New York, and he's written four books and I've known him for 20 years. And he used to host all our special Olympics golf outings. And he knew Sean for 20 years. He came up to me and hugged me and said, that was amazing. You need to write a book, Live Like Sean. Do you know how many people you will help by telling those stories in a book? And I looked at him. I said, are you out of your mind? Did you see my English SAT scores? You think I can write a book? (laughs) And so he introduced me to my co-writer who helped him write his books. And then I decided after I met her, you know what? I'm going to write this book. If not, the only reason I thought I was writing it was I didn't want to forget about all the great stories and about what an amazing human being Sean was 20 or 30 years from now when I get old. So I figured, well, we'll print 200 copies. We'll give them to his cousins and his aunts and uncles and teammates and coaches, and we'll be done. And then I did it, and it took on a life of its own, as everything in Sean's life did, and it became number two on Amazon in the fatherhood category on the Kindle and number 20 in books. And I was like, holy cow, what is going on here? And it's all the magic of Sean. Well, it is. And I on so many. Yeah. And I love the fact that you allowed his sisters and cousins and aunts and grandparents to contribute to the book with their stories. And that was that happened because I started getting all these cards and letters and texts and emails from so many people, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I knew, and his sisters knew, and his mother Maggie knew what an influence he had on our lives. And I saw it to a, you know an extent with his cousins, because some of his cousins started the Best Buddies chapter at their high school, and others created you know unified sports at their high schools, you know which is the and his sister started a game at her high school, the boys and girls varsity teams with Special Olympics athletes combining the teams half and half. Um, And they did so much. But the hardest part for me, you know, writing that book was not easy. The first I started in, uh, I think, August or September of 2019. And then when I got to Thanksgiving and Christmas, Sean loved holidays so much I couldn't even write anything. It was just too devastating. So I cried more than I laughed writing the book. But I think the hardest part for me to read was all these letters and how he impacted so many people. Um, just so many people, he changed their lives and he changed their, you know, what they want to do with their life. His sister changed her life, went back to school, just graduated Seton Hall. Now she's going to get her master's at NYU and is going to be a 
you know, social worker and a counselor at a special needs school when she graduates. And she had no ambition to do that. And then, uh, you know, she's going to help so many Sean's down the road. Well, he changed his daddy and, and, and by changing you, that led you to get involved in special Olympics in a big, big, big way. I mean, y'all did things there that said, people said, no, you can't do that. You're like, Oh yeah, we could do this. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I always say that I didn't choose to be involved in Special Olympics. It chose me through Sean. And my skill is getting people to give us money, right? We did that for 25 years by getting corporations to give us money. But those are always negotiations. You know, how much is GM going to pay? And we negotiate a price. Special Olympics, you know, first in New Jersey, I was on the board there for over 15 years. Um, And as chairman for three, we raised almost $10 million and built the first sports complex of its kind in the country for Special Olympics with Mark Edenson, who was the president of Special Olympics New Jersey and a very entrepreneurial guy. And nobody said we could do that. And even the board when I was chairman was like, whoa, whoa, settle down. We need to study this. I'm like, study what? They're like, it's 2001. The whole world's come to an end. I said, great. There's no competition. Let's go do it. And so we did that. And then we decided, I went to the World Games in Ireland in 2003, and there were eight 80,000 people in Croke Park in Dublin, Ireland with Muhammad Ali and Bono and U2 and hundreds of celebrities. And so Mark and I decided we need to do something like this in New Jersey. It took us a while, but we ended up hosting, you know, we bid for the 2014 Special Olympics USA Games. And we had 62 companies and raised $25 million. We had 10 founding partners at a million each. And we had the highest profile games in this country in the history of Special Olympics at the time. Um, And we had Fox who gave us probably $5 million worth of airtime all over the country to promote, promote Special Olympics. And I always said that all of us inside the bubble of Special Olympics know how great this organization is and know how it changes people's lives, not just the athletes, but the families and the volunteers and so many people. And so we got the message outside the bubble. And I think a whole bunch of families saw that and signed their children up for Special Olympics because it's no different than us playing high school sports. The camaraderie and the friendships is the most important part. And that's what it brought Sean. And so, you know, getting involved in that organization changed my life. And Sean changed the person I would have been. You know, I wouldn't have been the person I am today if not for Sean. Who knows where I would have been? Well, think about Special Olympics. If Eunice Kennedy Shriver didn't have a sister, Rose, then she doesn't start Special Olympics. I mean, it, it, you know, when it becomes personal, then you start having an impact. Uh, But I, I, I would challenge everybody listening today this is a book that no matter where you are in life, if you will read this book, it will change your attitude about life. It, it will, it will make you a better human being. I mean, in a very simplistic way, it just says, this is how you should live your life. It's about your well, family. It's about your friends. It's about the moment. It, it, TJ, you did a magnificent job. It's a tremendous book. Well, I appreciate that. And I always say it's Sean's book. I'm just the messenger. Yeah, I was the yeah. messenger at different stages his entire life through Special Olympics. I never would have done that. And the book is really Sean's book and Sean's lessons that everybody can you know, learn from and become a better person. You become a better husband, a better wife, a better business person by living by his creed, which was very simple. 
but it just came naturally to him. It's hard for me. I try, but I'm just a mortal. You know, I mean, I try as hard as I can to live like Sean. It just came naturally to him because he was genuine. He was authentic. And as you said, you know, somebody asked me at the end of a podcast, they said, what would you change about Sean's life if you could? And I said, nothing, nothing. It was perfect. Yeah, I get that. Um, I'm one of the guys that uh, bought the book on uh, my Amazon Kindle. I I want everybody out there. It's easy to get on Amazon. You can get it on your Kindle. You can get a hard copy of it from that standpoint. And I want to encourage everybody to do it. Tell me what you're doing these days and what's next for you, because I know you, my friend. You're not done. I think the hardest part of when I sold the company was the first year. I'm used to working 10, 12 hours a day, and I was like, what do I do with myself? So I'm involved with a few companies that I invested in. I'm on the board of a few companies, and I'm just trying to find you know, the next thing to do um, that will be gratifying and will be fun. But the problem is I know how much effort it takes to start a company. And so I'm not going to do that until I find the absolute perfect thing that you have to have a passion. It has to be a lifestyle. Um, and then you have to put in the work, right? Success is when preparation meets opportunity. Well, TJ, you're one of the giants in the business of sponsorship and sports marketing. You built a, an incredible business, but I, you're a bigger giant for all the people you've helped. And you've been a just a huge role model for all of us. And I can't thank you enough for being with us today from the bridge. Rick, it was a pleasure to be on with you. And you read that just like my mother wrote it. <laughs> well, she did call me up before the interview and just wanted to make sure that I took care of you. Listen, pal, I appreciate you being with us today. Um, again, got folks, get this book. This book will change your life. Uh, it you is could, uh, it's tremendous. You can read more about Sean on tjnelligan.com. All his stories are out there. Well, that's great. All right. Well, thanks, pal. Appreciate you. How about that interview with T.J. Nelligan? With that in mind, let's be positive today from the old soapbox. Now that we're all getting back together with full attendance at events like sports, music, and festivals, I want to remind you that there's a lot of need out there, and all of us can find a charity or cause to support with our time, our efforts, and yes, our money. There are so many ways the sponsorship and event marketing world can do to support those in need. We mentioned some of the charities that we work with, but we also work with the American Battlefield Trust to purchase and preserve sacred battlefield land where Americans fought and died for our freedoms. You heard today what T.J. Nelligan has done and is continuing to do for Special Olympics. So here's my challenge to you today. Go find a charity to support this year. You'll be glad you did. Let's close with another great place to eat On the Road with Rick. On my recent trip to Washington, our client took us to the Blue Duck Tavern. I'm usually not a fan of restaurants and hotels, but this one is the exception. It's in the Park Hyatt in D.C., right on the border to Georgetown. We had a private room for our group, and the food, atmosphere, and service were second to none. We had a large group, and it seemed like everyone ordered something different, and everything was terrific. I had a wonderful cauliflower and garlic soup, 
and then a wood oven grilled branzino with fennel and herbs. Charlotte had a salad with baby bib and white asparagus and fresh English peas and then an amazing crab cake. They have a great wine list too. Try the Blue Duck Tavern the next time you're in our nation's capital. That's a wrap on today's show. Thanks to TJ Nelligan for being my guest and to each of you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of From the Bridge. <laughs>